Okay, I think we're ready to start here. Apologies that we're starting a little late. We've had some tech issues that we are ironing out, um, but I think we're, we're good to go here. I want to welcome everyone and uh, thank you for joining us today. We are working across multiple time zones, uh, so I want to thank our speakers and the audience for taking the time to attend. Today's event is titled The Persecution of Palestinian Civil Society, Epistemic Violence, Silencing, and the Apartheid Framework. Our speakers today are the four co-authors of the monograph of the same title, which is part of the Institute for Palestine Studies Current Issues in Depth series. The monograph is available for free and open access and can be downloaded from the front page of our website at palestine-studies.org. I wanna also thank the co-publishers of this monograph, AARDI, Against Apartheid and Racial Discrimination in Israel. I also wanna thank our co-sponsors for this event, the Irish Center for Human Rights. Now our event today is scheduled for one hour. Each presenter will be speaking for about 10 minutes and then we'll be taking questions from our virtual audience. Uh, so those in attendance, please feel free to type your questions in the chat and we can ask those to our presenters for discussion. Uh, my name is Stephen Bennett and I'm the director of the Institute for Palestine Studies USA office in Washington, DC. For those of you who might be attending one of our events for the first time, uh, I'll introduce IPS a little bit. Uh, the Institute for Palestine Studies USA is an independent 501c3 public charity dedicated to the documentation, preservation, and knowledge production on Palestinian affairs. IPS USA raises public awareness, informs policy, and engages with various constitu constituencies on significant issues related to Palestine in the US and in the Middle East. IPS USA is a sister organization of the larger Institute for Palestine Studies founded in 1963 and headquartered in Beirut. Uh, we also have an office in Ramallah, Palestine as well. So I'll, I'll quickly introduce our speakers here. Uh, firstly, we have Rania Muharab. She is an Irish research council and Hardiman PhD scholar at the Irish Center for Human Rights in the School of Law at the University of Galway. She is a policy member of El Shabaka and a former legal researcher and advocacy, advocacy officer with El Haq. Uh, also hopefully joining us will be Dr. Susan Power. Uh, she, be she is having some tech issues, so we're, we're trying to get that figured out right now. Uh, Dr. Power is the head of legal research and advocacy at El Haq. She previously lectured for seven years and was acting program director at Griffith College Dublin and has been a member of the Irish Red Cross Committee on International Humanitarian Law. Uh, Dr. Power holds a PhD in international law from Trinity College Dublin. She is a co-editor along with Nadia Swanson of the forthcoming book, Prolonged Occupation and International Law, uh, which I know is now available for pre-order on the Brill uh, website. Uh, next up will be Pierce Clancy, an Irish Research Council PhD scholar at the Irish Center for Human Rights in the School of Law at the University of Galway. He's a former legal researcher at Al Haq. Uh, Pierce received his LLM in Peace Operations, Humanitarian Law, and Conflicts from the Irish Center for Human Rights as well. And uh, fourth up will be Elizabeth uh, Rigavi. She is the Levant researcher at the Cairo Institute for Human Rights Studies based in Tunis. She received her MA in Middle Eastern Studies from Columbia University in New York and her BA in government from Georgetown University. Uh, and with all that taken care of, I will turn it over to Rania, who was first up. Thank you so much, Stephen. So good morning, afternoon and evening to everyone joining us here today. Um, I'd really first like to thank Stephen and Laura and the entire team at the Institute for Palestine Studies 
both for making for publishing the monograph and for making this event today possible. Um, we really appreciate it, and uh, it's been a pleasure working with you. Um, so this uh, webinar is co-hosted also by the Irish Centre for Human Rights, where both myself and Pierce are based. Um, and I want to start by acknowledging that as we're talking today, um, we continue to witness a serious escalation in excessive use of force in Palestine, a shoot to kill policy by the Israeli occupying forces, including extrajudicial executions, mass arbitrary detention and arrests, collective punishment, and the rise in settler violence against Palestinians and their property. Uh, so these are all committed uh, with the full support of the Israeli occupying forces and in complete impunity. Um, the monograph that we're here to discuss today is about the persecution of Palestinian civil society organizations. Um, and the four of us are going to be discussing different sections of this monograph. Um, I will start by highlighting that um, when we started writing this monograph, our intention was to shed further light on the attacks we've seen over the past year against Palestinian human rights organizations, um, including Al Haq, um, uh, Defense for Children International Palestine, Al Damir, um, the Union of Agricultural Work Committees, uh, the Union of Palestinian Women's Committees, and Bissan Center for Research and Development. So these six organizations are at the forefront of uh, human rights um, and civil society work in Palestine. Um, and they have been arbitrarily designated um, in October last year as so-called terror organizations by the Israeli Defense Minister. Um, in writing this monograph, we then witnessed further escalations in the attacks against these organizations. So in August uh, 2020, Israeli occupying forces raided and forcibly closed uh, seven leading Palestinian human rights and civil society groups, including the six designated in October uh, 2021, as well as the health work committees, which have been at the forefront of the COVID-19 response in the occupied Palestinian territory. So um, in the monograph, we argue that the attacks against Palestinian civil society form part of a systematic policy to silence and delegitimize all forms of Palestinian resistance to Israeli oppression, including efforts to seek justice and accountability under international law. We understand silencing and delegitimization of Palestinian human rights advocacy as tools to entrench Israeli apartheid over the Palestinian people. To make this argument, we draw on Article 2F of the 1973 Apartheid Convention, which was adopted by the UN General Assembly. So this provision considers that an inhuman act of, amongst the inhuman acts of apartheid are the persecution of organizations and persons by depriving them of fundamental rights and freedoms because they oppose apartheid. Uh, what I will focus on in my initial remarks is the first part of the monograph in which we talk about the silencing attempts as efforts to undermine the knowledge production by Palestinians and of course the critical documentation of widespread and systematic human rights violations by Palestinian human rights groups on the ground. So we understand these Israeli attacks in epistemic terms, that is, as efforts to undermine this knowledge production and efforts to challenge Israel's settler colonialism and apartheid over Palestinians. So persecution as this inhuman act of apartheid helps us make sense of a broader effort to silence Palestinians, to prevent documentation of serious violations on the ground, and of course, to seek, advocacy, seek accountability at the international level. It's important to highlight that Palestinians have for decades uh, sought to challenge Israeli apartheid, both in scholarship 
and advocacy, as well as through grassroots mobilization. All of this within the context of erasure of Palestinian voices and experiences, um, both uh, physical uh, and material attacks against Palestinians, as well as dispossession on the ground, but also efforts to discredit Palestinian voices. Uh, in the words of Edouard Said, for example, Palestinians have long been denied the right to narrate their lived experiences. It's therefore unsurprising that Palestinian advocates and allies who have played the leading role in challenging Israeli apartheid over the years have also been subjected to systematic attacks and smear campaigns for speaking out. The apartheid framework, as well as the framework of settler colonialism, which we employ in this monograph, have allowed Palestinians to affirm agency and ownership over the very discourse on Palestinian oppression. This means that understanding attacks on Palestinian civil society as efforts to undermine knowledge produced by Palestinians um, is an important aspect um, of the argument that we are making. Uh, epistemic violence, which is in the title of the monograph, is understood as the violence arising at the level of knowledge production. And this is embedded in systems of domination and the dispossession of indigenous peoples, which is inherent in uh, the Zionist settler colonial project. Um, in the colonial encounters, scholars have argued that local knowledge has often been dismissed and that indigenous knowledge systems have been rejected as irrelevant or, um, or discredited in other ways. And this is pretty much the experience that Palestinians and allies have faced, including anti-apartheid activists who for decades have been silenced and delegitimized um, as so-called uh, as truth tellers in their attempts to challenge Israeli oppression. These dynamics also persist today, as we argue, in the Western media's uh, decontextualized reporting on Palestine, the refusal to recognize Israeli crimes, but also more broadly, we refer, for example, to the work of Noor Masalha, the Palestinian historian, who has noted that erasing Palestine and appropriating its heritage has been fundamental to Zionist colonial practices before, during, and since the Nakba of 1948. This is the broader context that we understand uh, the delegitimization of Palestinian human rights advocacy in. So this brings me to the question of the growing discourse around Israeli apartheid um, by scholars and civil society. What we observe is that the dynamics in the growing movement against Israeli apartheid reveal the same epistemic violence and erasure of Palestinians' decades-long knowledge production on the nature of the Israeli regime. So for example, uh, Palestinian voices have been marginalized in this discourse. We saw this, for example, in the way uh, Israeli human rights groups uh, uh, reports on Israeli apartheid were perceived and reported by the international media, for example. So these have been presented as groundbreaking and they've often been cited in isolation from decades of scholarship by Palestinians on the question, including the work, for example, of Palestinian organizations such as Al-Haq, Badil, Adal, Al-Damir, and many others. Um, so together with the detailed reports published by Human Rights Watch in April 2021 and Amnesty International in February 2022, which provided further recognition of Israeli apartheid, um, the paper, for example, by Betzel and the Israeli Human Rights Group has often been cited in isolation from decades of scholarship on the question by Palestinians. Um, so this has been referred to as a disappointment by Palestinian scholars, um, but also a reflection of the erasure at play. 
So the discrediting and marginalization of Palestinian voices is what we call a form of epistemic violence, and it constitutes erasure of Palestinian knowledge production on the apartheid framework. And we believe that this is an important context within which to understand the attacks on civil society organizations in Palestine. Um, and I'll point out one final uh, issue that we uh, discussed before moving on to my co-authors. Um, we also highlight that epistemic violence is central to the eliminatory logic of settler colonialism, which seeks to displace and replace indigenous peoples on the land. Um, so to counter the silencing of Palestinians, including the work of civil society organization, requires us, first of all, to engage critically with the knowledge produced by Palestinians in the anti-apartheid movement over the years. This means engaging with the argument that apartheid is premised on the fragmentation of the Palestinian people on both sides of the Green Line and in exile, and the need to center the ongoing Nakba, so the ongoing catastrophe and denial of the right of return, as well as uh, the right of self-determination of the Palestinian people in this discourse. And finally, the importance of understanding apartheid within a broader context of Zionist settler colonialism, rather than in isolation from this context. Um, so these arguments are still missing from the work of Israeli and international human rights organizations who have adopted the apartheid framework in recent years. Finally, in order to reverse epistemic violence, um, we believe that the struggle against Israeli apartheid must seek to elevate Palestinian analyses and critiques and to challenge the institutionalized silencing of Palestinians. Um, through this arbitrary designation of Palestinian civil society groups as so-called terror organizations, the Israeli re regime seeks to discredit decades of Palestinian anti-apartheid knowledge production and to justify the very oppression that civil society is seeking to challenge. So we believe that in the growing movement against Israeli apartheid internationally, it's essential then to lend support to the work of Palestinian civil society to reject these baseless designations by the Israeli occupying authorities, and of course to elevate the experiences of and the knowledge production by Palestinians who have been directly affected by Israeli apartheid. I will stop here and give the floor to my co-authors. And it looks like we are still waiting for Dr. Power to join us. It looks like we still have tech issues on her end. Uh, so if it's okay, we will go next to Pierce Clancy. Thanks, Stephen. Um, and thank you to all of the Institute of Palestine Studies um, for hosting us here, to RD as well, um, for working with us on the monograph, and of course to the Irish Centre for Human Rights, our, at least mine and Rania's um, home institution. Um, so now that Rania has done the job of sort of outlining the core of our analysis and why we understand what is taking place in Palestine as apartheid settler colonialism. Um, the next obvious question is what's to be done about that? Uh, Rania has flagged one example in the um, acknowledgement of Palestinian knowledge production and the sort of resistance to the um, epistemic violence that's being perpetuated. But another discussion that's arisen, another point that's been made is that there might be an avenue in the sort of machinery of international criminal justice to try to resist apartheid and for Palestinians to resist apartheid. Um, there have been numerous fronts on which work and advocacy has been done um, for seeking justice for Palestinian victims, but 
this notion of, of using or leveraging international criminal justice and international criminal legal mechanisms to struggle against apartheid is what I want to focus on. Um, so as has been said by Rania, the crime of apartheid does constitute a crime against humanity in international criminal law. And that's set out in two primary instruments. First of these is the 1973 Apartheid Convention, which as Rania said, has been um, adopted by the UN General Assembly. And the other instrument in question is the 1998 Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, which established the ICC, the International Criminal Court, which is based in The Hague. Now, both of these instruments operate quite a bit differently. Um, and importantly, both of them have fairly different definitions as to what constitutes the crime of apartheid, right? What the crime of apartheid is. The Apartheid Convention is quite a bit broader. Right? And it's more extensive than the definition you would find in the Rome Statute. For example, while the Apartheid Convention does include the silencing of opposition to apartheid as a sort of constitutive or underlying act of apartheid, you won't find that in the Rome Statute. It's quite a bit narrower in terms of its scope. That said, and while they are different, both the Apartheid Convention and Rome Statute do have fairly significant similarities. One of these is that they both require there to be some kind of domination, some kind of oppression instituted by one racial group over another racial group with the specific intention of maintaining that regime or uh, maintaining that reality, right? Across both the Apartheid Convention and the Rome Statute of the ICC, that is um, the sort of minimum, absolute minimum threshold. The difference comes from what those underlying acts could be, right? What individual or discrete acts can be prosecuted as part of a wider apartheid regime? Um, the second thing to note is that the Rome Statute has a very, very specific function. Um, and that's basically to give jurisdiction to the International Criminal Court, which is, as I said, based in The Hague. What this means is that the ICC, at least directly, can only operate off the narrower definition, the narrower provisions that you find in the text of the Rome Statute, meaning that, for example, the silencing of opposition cannot directly be prosecuted by the court. It has to limit itself to that narrower definition and to the underlying criminal acts um, that you can find in that definition, including, for example, murder, uh, forcible transfer, torture, et cetera, et cetera, so on, right? Now, there are sort of creative legal ways, which in theory, the court could read um, factors such as the silencing of opposition to apartheid into its somewhat narrower definition. Um, but it's very much unclear as to whether the court would take that step, even whether the prosecutor, um, the office of the prosecutor of the ICC might take that step. So we'll leave that to one side for a minute. Looking at the apartheid convention then, as I said, it's quite a bit wider. It's quite a bit more extensive. It gives sort of a, a broader um, image as to what may constitute apartheid. And it hinges its enforcement on the thing that we call universal jurisdiction, principle of universal jurisdiction. Meaning that so far as international law is concerned, any state which is party to the convention can prosecute those responsible for the crime of apartheid in its own domestic courts. For example, in the United States. Um, under the principle of universal jurisdiction, in theory, there's no issue with that. Now, the issue, as you might imagine, with universal jurisdiction is that it requires a considerable amount of political will on the part of the prosecuting state. Political will, which has, as of yet and in general, not materialized. Now, that's not to say that it 
will not or could not materialize in the future. But looking at the sort of political and legal landscape as it exists right now across the world, it doesn't seem like it's quite there yet. So that's universal jurisdiction. What about the ICC? So the International Criminal Court, as, as I'm sure we all know, um, does have an open criminal investigation into international crimes committed within the territory of the state of Israel, or state of Palestine, excuse me. Um, and it has, by that fact, territorial jurisdiction over the occupied Palestinian territory, meaning the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and the Gaza Strip, right? That is the extent of its territorial jurisdiction. It also has, by virtue of that subject matter jurisdiction over any war crimes, crimes against humanity, or crimes of genocide that have taken place within that territorial unit. The ICC does not have jurisdiction on the other side of the Green Line, i.e. in the territory that's internationally recognized as belonging to the state of Israel, meaning that whatever um, constitutive acts of apartheid take place within that territory, it's sort of excluded from the attention of the ICC, meaning that the ICC is inherently a very, very limited value to example, um, to, for example, Palestinian citizens of Israel. Right, it can't really do a huge amount for them. That's one limitation, right? Another limitation is that Israel has categorically refused to engage with the court in any way, um, including by denying access to ICC personnel, um, just as it has done and continues to do with successive UN special rapporteurs on Palestine, um, with the various UN commissions of inquiry and fact-finding missions, and of course, the current ongoing um, open-ended Commission of Inquiry. That's another limitation. Third limitation then that's worth mentioning is that since the criminal investigation was opened um, uh, last year, there has been a change in prosecutor. A new prosecutor has been elected. The investigation and, and the work that was um, put into opening that investigation before pretrial chamber was done by the previous prosecutor, Fatou Bensouda. The new prosecutor, Karim Khan, hasn't really addressed the Palestine situation much at all. Um, he hasn't made any public statements on the matter, and it's very much unclear um, as to where his sort of personal positions are on Palestine, and by virtue of that, what the current Office of the Prosecutor's positions are um, on the situation in Palestine. Um, it's difficult to speculate what that means, um, if that's something to be concerned about or not, but it is worth noting that he is by quote-unquote deprioritizing resources within the office has effectively excluded crimes committed by or crimes allegedly committed by U.S. military forces um, in Afghanistan from the scope of his investigation, which doesn't really bode terribly well for the role that the ICC can play in Palestine at this time. So with this sort of uncertainty, with the new prosecutor and the inherent logistical issues in the situation of Palestine, as long as the sort of more legalistic jurisdictional issues at play. This does mean that there are very real reasons, in my view, to be seriously skeptical as to what the ICC in a purely legalistic approach um, can achieve in Palestine in isolation. Um, that said, there is still value, we believe, in making that very legalistic charge of apartheid. Um, this is what Nora Erekat and John Reynolds talk about in a piece that we cite in the monograph. Um, they say that, quote, the very fact of Palestinians submitting this claim of apartheid to an international tribunal can make its own tactical contribution to anti-colonial strategy, end quote, right? Now, the fruits of that strategy, right, the outcome 
it seems very clear to me, will not be borne out in a courtroom, right? That's not really where the main battleground, I think, is. Um, however, these efforts can contribute and can bolster other efforts, both on the ground in Palestine, um, amongst Palestinian refugees, and either right of return, wherever they might be, um, and internationally, including at the United Nations. Um, so with that, I'll stop um, saying that we're cautiously optimistic about what international law and international criminal justice can do in and for Palestine. But we're very much cognizant of the fact that the international criminal law approach and international criminal justice generally is just one part of a larger whole in this struggle to dismantle Israel's settler colonial and apartheid regime. And I'll thank everyone again um, for having us and hand it back to Stephen. Thank you. Great. Thank you for that, Pierce. Uh, and next, we will turn to Elizabeth Regebe for her contribution. Uh, thank you, Stephen. Uh, so I'd like to begin by also thanking the Institute for Palestine Studies and the Irish Center for Human Rights for organizing this event. I'm very happy to have the opportunity to speak with you all today. Uh, so in my intervention, I'll be focusing on a, a couple of areas. Um, so taking a look at the sharp uptick in global consensus that uh, global civil society consensus that Israel is committing the crime of apartheid and how that has impacted developments on the UN level. And then I'm also going to take a look at the role of UN mechanisms in addressing the root causes of the situation in Palestine as well as apartheid and what that can mean for uh, accountability efforts. So I'll begin by taking a look at the ongoing mobilization efforts of civil society and how that has translated into mounting recognition of Israeli apartheid, specifically on the UN level. For over three years, a coalition of Palestinian regional and international civil society organizations have campaigned in order to increase international recognition that Israel has established an apartheid regime over the Palestinian people as a whole. And, and this is being done with the eye towards building uh, ultimately the sufficient political will to see effective measures to be undertaken in order to bring Israeli apartheid to an end. Um, but I do think it's important to note that uh, the developments that we've been seeing in the last few years and these mobilization efforts um, today have been made possible due to the decades of work by Palestinian scholars, activists, and civil society uh, on apartheid that have paved the way for, for everything that we're seeing today. On the UN level, there have been some significant developments in recent years. So I'm going to highlight just a few examples. There certainly are more, but I'm just going to, to focus in on, on some of the ones that I think are, are critical. In 2017, the UN Economic and Social Commission for Western Asia, known as ESQA for short, published a comprehensive report titled Israeli Practices Towards the Palestinian People and the Question of Apartheid. Now, this report found that Israel had established an apartheid regime over the Palestinian people as a whole and utilizes strategic fragmentation in order to divide the Palestinian people into different legal and geographic domains as a main tool to ensure the continued maintenance of this regime. Unfortunately, the report was ultimately removed from the UN website shortly after its publication by the Secretary General as a result of political pressure. So despite these efforts by Israel and its allies in 2017 to silence any kind of debate about apartheid on the UN level, recognition has continued to grow within the UN system. So for example, during its review of Israel in 2019, the uh, Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination 
found in December of that year that Israel had violated Article 3 of the International Convention on the Elimination of All uh, Forms of Racial Discrimination, which prohibits racial segregation and apartheid. And it found that this violation was occurring on both sides of the Green Line, so both inside of Israel and in the occupied Palestinian territory. Most recently, in March of this year, the former Special Rapporteur on Palestine, Michael Link, and his final report to the Human Rights Council found that Israel was committing the crime of apartheid in the occupied Palestinian territory as part of its broader settler colonial project. And he also recommended that the international community both accept and adopt the findings of human rights organizations that apartheid was being practiced by Israel, not only in the occupied Palestinian territory, but beyond this limitation. And as well, over the last three years, there has also been an increase in the number of UN member states that have uh, spoken out, uh, recognizing that Israel is committing the crime of apartheid and condemning these practices at the Human Rights Council, as well as the General Assembly. And I'll just quickly note here, um, as it's significant that these member states are, are being led by South Africa and Namibia. So next, I'm going to quickly take a look at some uh, shifts in the way the UN is beginning to deal with the situation in Palestine and um, the, the opening of the door towards addressing root causes, um, as well as the examination of the, the crime of apartheid and its applicability to the situation on the ground. So following the Israeli escalations against the Palestinian people during the Unity Intifada in April and May 2021, the Human Rights Council established an ongoing commission of inquiry to investigate, quote, all underlying root causes of recurrent tensions, instability, and protection of, uh, protraction of conflict, including systematic discrimination based on national, ethnic, racial, or religious identity. And the geographic mandate the commission of inquiry was given was for the occupied Palestinian territory, including East Jerusalem and Israel. Uh, so this mandate opens the door for the commission of inquiry to investigate the crime of apartheid, against the Palestinian people as a whole. And in their first report to the Human Rights Council, the commissioners expressed that they intended to also engage with Palestinians that are living outside of Israel and Palestine. So we have an opportunity here for a mechanism that will truly um, engage with the issues in a more holistic uh, approach. If we look back at prior years and the way that the UN has dealt with the situation in Palestine, uh, it has established various mechanisms from commissions of inquiry to fact-finding missions, as well as the special repertoire mandate, of course. Um, however, the focus has been on the occupied Palestinian territory only. And so this, of course, this uh, approach, of course, fails to address the Palestinian people as a whole and uh, further contributes to the normalization of Israel's strategic fragmentation. So the geographic mandate that was given to this new commission of inquiry provides a promising alternative to the UN's longstanding approach, um, which has failed to deal with the human rights violations for Palestinians inside of Israel, as well as those that are displaced uh, abroad as refugees and exiles that are denied the right to return to their homes, lands, and properties. And so it is for this reason that the new Commission of Inquiry sets an important precedent on how the future, um, how in the future the UN can address the situation for the Palestinian people. And, and could potentially impact the existing mechanisms and the way they, they function um, and, and potentially opening the door to expanding the, the mandates of these previous, uh, previous mechanisms. And so this brings me to my, the, my final point that I wanted to discuss, which was to look at uh, the UN mechanisms that existed 
to address apartheid in South Africa and what that could mean in the Palestinian context. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, so in 1962, the General Assembly established the UN Special Committee Against Apartheid. Uh, and then it was, uh, it also established in 1967, uh, a mechanism that worked very closely. These two mechanisms worked uh, hand in hand to address the situation. And this was the UN Center Against uh, Apartheid. And these two mechanisms played a key role within the international community towards uh, supporting the struggle against apartheid and uh, uh, organizing the collective international response to, to what was happening. And I think something that is really interesting about the way these mechanisms functioned, um, and, and I think it's unique uh, compared to the way other, other mechanisms that have been established by the UN on various range of issues, is that the, the committee and the center were very proactive in what they did. Um, due to the explosive situation. Uh, and so they were very um, action oriented from their inception and they conducted a wide range of activities that had impacts on the ground. And so I'm going to just mention a few of these, but it's of course not exhaustive for, for the um, significant role that they played. <clears throat> so together, these two mechanisms pressed for effective sanctions. They built uh, support for collective international action, legitimized calls for boycotts, divestment and sanctions. Um, they also studied and documented apartheid, what its impacts were on the people, and what this, what kinds of international repercussions this had. Uh, and critically, something that was, um, I think, unique to these mechanisms, reported on the role of third states uh, in the international community and assessing their compliance with international law and relevant resolutions in their dealings uh, and relationships with the South African apartheid regime. And just a couple more points. These mechanisms also campaigned for the release of political prisoners and carried out uh, critical public awareness campaigns about apartheid and what it means. So because of how effective these mechanisms were in addressing the situation in the South African context and occupied Namibia, uh, Palestinian and global civil society have consistently campaigned for the reconstitution of both of these mechanisms as a potential avenue to address Israeli apartheid and coordinate international response. And uh, I, I think it's interesting that these, uh, these calls have been endorsed or um, um, echoed by the foreign ministers of both South Africa and Namibia, and Namibia, but also by former Special Rapporteur on Palestine, Michael Link, in his report on apartheid. Uh, he included a recommendation to see this special committee reconstituted. If the General Assembly does decide to take this step in the future, to reconstitute either these pre-existing mechanisms or to establish a new mechanism that could serve a similar purpose. It, it's critical that these bodies are empowered similarly to what we saw in the historical context for South Africa to be proactive in, as proactive in the Palestinian context, to be able to report authoritatively on Israel's apartheid regime, to address the role and complicity of third states in providing support and aid in enabling the apartheid regime to continue. Uh, and to advocate for an organized coordinated international action towards bringing Israeli apartheid uh, to an end. And I will close by saying that the adoption of the apartheid framework within the UN and by the international community ultimately will be a critical step toward recognizing the reality on the ground for what it is, but maybe even more importantly, towards recentering the experience of the Palestinian people as a whole. Um, within the way the international community has been dealing with the situation. And I will stop there. Thank you.
Great. Thanks so much, Elizabeth. Uh, so unfortunately, it looks like we have not been joined yet by Dr. Power. Um, we hope everything is okay with her. Uh, I want to remind everyone in attendance that if you have any questions you'd like to ask to the panel, please type it in the chat and we'll be able to ask those questions. So far, we, it looks like we have a couple. Uh, the first one being, uh, can a or has there been a petition submitted to stop all UN funding for Israel until they respond to the ICC? Could you repeat that question, Stephen? Sorry. Yeah, so the, the question is, can or has there been a petition submitted to stop all UN funding for Israel until they respond to the ICC? Um, well, uh, Beth and Pierce, feel free to jump in, but to my knowledge, there has not been any such petition. Um, but as Beth was saying, there have been countless petitions uh, for the UN, in particular the General Assembly, to recognize the situation of apartheid over the Palestinian people. Um, and yes, there have also been calls for divestment um, and other forms of coercive measures uh, until um, Israel complies with its obligations under international law. Um, and these have been made by hundreds of Palestinian regional and international organizations and a growing number of groups over the years. Um, and today we are seeing these discussions taking place at the General Assembly. Just yesterday, uh, the UN Special Rapporteur on Palestine, Francesca Albanese, um, and the UN Commission of Inquiry, uh, which Elizabeth mentioned, uh, presented their reports to uh, the General Assembly. And in these reports, they, um, so the Commission of Inquiry refers to Israel's perpetual occupation as unlawful, um, and the Special Rapporteur adopts the apartheid framework and the settler colonialism frameworks um, as relevant to the understanding of the situation on the ground. And she advocates for the right of the self-determination of, self of Palestinians. Um, so there has been a lot of effort in this regard. I might offer a, a very quick answer as well, um, tying it back to the to the idea that there are very severe limitations of relying on the ICC. Um, I mean, the International Criminal Court is not just an international court, but in many ways, it's also an international organization um, made up of states and consented to by states. Um, the state of Israel is not a state party to the Rome Statute. Um, it's not a member of the court, um, and it doesn't engage with its infrastructure. Um, the Rome Statute does include obligations to cooperate with the court, but the nature of international law and the nature of the Rome Statute is that that doesn't directly apply to non-state parties, um, which is an issue for the situation in Palestine, um, given non-membership of Israel, Similarly, also the situation in Afghanistan, given the non-membership of the United States. Um, it's very, very difficult to um, make non-member states uh, engage with the International Criminal Court. And that's something that you see playing out right now in a different context, in the context of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, Russia is not a member state uh, or, or a state party to the Rome Statute. Um, so it's very difficult to um, try to make Russia cooperate with the court in this exact same situations uh, applies to Israel, so. Great, thank you for that. Uh, so we have a, a few more questions coming through here. Um, one, and, and Rana, you had mentioned this a, a second ago, uh, what possible impact can the recent and powerful 
uh, statements by Francesca Albanese, the newly appointed repertoire to the UN on Palestine, hope to have on the situation. And I, I want to note if, if uh, everyone in attendance here, if you haven't seen her recent statements, I definitely suggest that you watch that. It was very powerful. Absolutely. Um, I'll say very briefly that uh, Francesca Albanese has put forward a really powerful first report uh, on the right of self-determination, um, and she calls for a paradigm shift when it comes to addressing the situation in Palestine, uh, which really I think civil society has also been calling for um, in urging recognition of the root causes, those of apartheid and settler colonialism. And um, it's really, of course, powerful to see that she has followed on from her predecessor, Professor Michael Link, uh, in using the apartheid language, but she also really pushes forward the settler colonialism analysis, comparing the situation in Palestine to other settler colonies um, and uh, the uh, struggle for decolonization of the third world. So this is really very powerful, and I think that it uh, provides uh, important um, contributions to the ongoing discourse in relation to Palestine. And we hope that her report is going to be uh, engaged with and that the recommendations are going to be uh, implemented. I also jump in maybe and add a, add a couple of thoughts to, to what Rania said, but I think, um, I mean, she she had a very powerful report. And going back to the comments I made, and I was discussing the limitations of the different mandates and mechanisms by the UN, I think what was very interesting about what she did in her report was that while she remained within the limitations of her geographical and temporal mandate, um, she did a very good job of fully contextualizing what was happening in occupied Palestinian territory into the bigger picture. Uh, and she made very clear in the introduction about how you cannot uh, assess the situation in a vacuum. You have to look at the history, you have to look at the events that preceded the occupation, and it has to be connected to the bigger picture. Uh, and so she did that by looking at the events preceding, um, leading up to the Nakba in 1948, but also by looking at the situation or, or mentioning the situation for, for refugees that are um, outside of, of Israel and Palestine as well denied the right of return. So I think it's it's interesting to see how collectively looking at the growing consensus about apartheid, the mounting recognition, and, and the impacts this is having on how the narrative is shifting. Um, and, it, and it's shifting even within the United Nations. Um, so I think that's that's part of the significant contribution that she's she's making right now. Great. Uh, another question we had come in here, uh, is it possible for Palestinians to use uh, R2P, responsibility to protect? Uh, does that seem like a, a possibility? Um, I, can, I can offer a short answer to that. I, I'm skeptical. Um, R2P is in large part, largely a, a, a political um, instrument. Um, and one that's kind of fallen out of favor, um, particularly since it was um, used and, and disastrous results in, in, in scenarios such as Libya. Um, I'm not sure there is a huge amount of um, appetite to re-engage that particular paradigm, particularly not um, in the context of a very strong Western ally such as, such as Israel, um, to be honest. 
Uh, one question I had, it looks like we've got some more questions coming in here too that, that we'll get to. Something that, that I was curious about in, in rereading re this monograph again, um, if I remember, the number, I think it was there was a 13 month funding freeze uh, by the European Commission for these organizations. I'm, I'm curious, you know, did the work of El Hawk and PCHR and others continue to reduce capacity? What was the actual um, effect of this funding freeze? I have to think that there, they created some kind of internal crisis for these organizations. Thanks so much, Stephen. I can jump in on that point. Uh, so just to note, um, for those who haven't read the monograph yet, uh, Stephen is referring to 13 months uh, funding freeze um, that uh, the European Commission had um, imposed in suspending its project funding to Al Haq and the Palestinian Center for Human Rights, noting that the Palestinian Center of Hum for Human Rights is not one of the targeted organizations um, uh, from the October 2021 designation. Uh, so in June 2022, uh, this funding freeze was uh, actually reversed. Um, and uh, the European Commission said it had lifted it unconditionally and with immediate effect, and that it had found no suspicions of irregularities and or fraud. Um, and I think we have Susan Power, who unfortunately has some technical difficulties, but has joined us now, um, and she might be able to speak to this more. Um, but we recently had Shawan Javerin, director of Al Haq, who joined uh, us in, in Galway. Uh, for a lunchtime seminar, and he spoke about the continued dedication of Al Haq to human rights work in Palestine, and also said that uh, the uh, the organization had faced uh, no further um, uh, funding freezes from donors, and that they continue to face uh, to receive support for their work. And maybe Susan can jump in on that point. Hi, Susan. Hi. How are you? Yeah. Thanks very much. Actually. Um, we've been overwhelmed with the support from the from the international community and from our donors in particular. And some donors have increased um, their their donor funding to the organisation. So we've really been buoyed up by by this support. Um, and in terms of the um, in terms of the ongoing situation, like there are. There are issues which face us down the line. So at the moment, we are able to receive funds into the organization through the banking system, but we anticipate that at some point the banking system in Israel is going to be shut down to us and we won't be able to receive the funding through the Israeli banks. And um, that hasn't happened yet. Um, but we understand or we we anticipate that it's a matter of time and that the the decision on that is more political. Um, legally, once the organizations are designated um, under the counterterrorism organization and our uh, legislation, and once that becomes um, once that becomes permanent and the designation is permanent, um, as it did to as, as it did do back in uh, August, then we can uh, potentially see the banks could have shut down to us immediately. So the fact that they didn't is a political decision. Um, and we, we do think that something will happen down the line. It's enough for it to have a chilling effect on the way we plan our work. Um, but other than that, our, our resolve and our determination is, is very strong to continue. Great, thank you, Dr. Power. We're glad you could you could join us. <laughs> like we had some technical issues that we were dealing with, so it's great to see you. We here. did. Um, and and so there was a recent update uh, that you know while the while on the European side of things they've largely um, rejected these claims of these organizations being connected uh, to terrorism. Um, 
And, and you know, really by the, by the commonly accepted definition of the term, nothing in these designation orders really seems to come close to, you know, th these being connected to any kind of terrorist activity or anything like that. Um, you know, the, the, the accusations themselves, if you really look at the text, they, they almost read as absurd. It's almost as if they, they undermine the claims that they're trying to make themselves. Um, but I, I know that while the European side has rejected these things, that the US side now every few months is getting updates um, from Israeli authorities on new evidence and things like that. And much of that evidence has been kept secret um, under Israeli law. Um, do we have any idea what this you know, secret evidence might be, what this new information they're trying to present to the US is, and if it's having any effect um, on, on U, uh, US officials? I can speak to this a little bit. Um, and first off, although the uh, although the European states as well have they come out they came out with a very strong statement, you know, of support that the um, that the claims towards um, that the claims of terrorism had not been um, substantiated, and that this uh, the uh, the evidence that Israel had provided had not been substantiated. There still was that opening kind of condition that. If there was evidence that could be substantiated, there could be potentially um, actions taken, and this is this is very damaging from the EU states as well. And it's something we would have expected to see an outright, complete, and utter closed shop condemnation of the designations. And we haven't got what we wanted in that respect. But what we have is very good, and we do appreciate the support. But it really isn't enough, and it has green lighted the way for Israel to continue on with persecuting our organizations. And we saw this as well in relation to the United States, like even before the raids on our organizations, a few days before this, um, Israel made promises to the, the United States that um, more evidence uh, would be forthcoming. Um, and then after afterwards uh, proceeded to raid the organizations. And this, this shows that once Israel is given an open door, like the, the net result of that are attacks on the organizations and potentially as well um, arrests of individual members. We did see the type of tactics, I don't know if this has been um, spoken to already, but with the health workers committees who aren't a designated terror organization, but they have similarly been um, designated as an unlawful association under military order. And we saw two of the members of their organization, two accountants who were who were interrogated and subjected um, to um, to acts amounting to inhuman and degrading treatment and potentially um, acts of torture. And all of this was to obtain so-called evidence for the 74 page dossier, um, which Israel paraded around last May um, of 2021. So these are the types of this is the result and this is the net effect of opening the door to Israel to, to try and fabricate um, more evidence. Um, it's problematic in terms of the United States that there is this uh, channel open, but I would also say that this channel isn't exactly closed in Europe either. It's not like we have completely moved on from this in Europe, and it's, it's, it's incredibly alarming. Um, it sends a very dangerous signal to Israel that it has a green light to rampage around the West Bank and persecution, terrorize individuals and organizations and to raid the organizations. In terms of the level of, of the climate of fear that this perpetrates, there's like one organization that hasn't reopened its doors yet because of fear of raids and attacks on the organization. And those members are still working from home. So it, it does create an, a, a really grave and serious climate um, of, of, of terror and panic.
Thank you for that. And uh, it looks like we have, a, this is a, a good question here as well. There, there have been instances of Israel almost casually admitting to apartheid practices uh, to essentially uphold the, the nature of the state. Is it possible for such an admission to be used um, in the context of prosecution in the ICC? Um, I can speak to that, and, and I would say yes. Um, so if, if you look at the way that the crime of apartheid is um, constructed in the Rome Statute, there is a sort of contextual element to that, which is that a uh, institutionalized regime of racial domination and oppression exists in the first part. And then there's also a requirement for a specific intention to maintain that regime, that reality. Um, if the Ministry for Foreign Affairs or the Department of Foreign Affairs of Israel is sending out tweets essentially confirming that, um, then I don't see any reason why that cannot be baked into a legal argument saying that the state of Israel has constructed this regime, it's aware of the existence of a regime, it's done it intentionally, and it intends to keep the situation as is. Um, similarly, statements by public officials, um, there have been very, very striking um, statements put out by um, ministers for foreign affairs, um, ministers for strategic affairs, ministers of justice, so on and so forth, as well as um, senior members of the military hierarchy. And um, all of these can be used to prove that sort of contextual element of the existence of a regime and also the, the aspect of the specific intent to maintain that regime. And um, that is all, by my estimation, fair game. Um, if a prosecutor of the International Criminal Court chooses to go ahead with a charge of apartheid, which, of course, we hope that they will. Great. And uh, so we're, we're approaching the end of our time here. I, I, I do want to be sure to open the floor to Dr. Power in case there's any uh, any additional comments that you want to make or uh, uh, before we, we close up. Thank you very much. And I and I do, and my apologies for the, the, the very, uh, the technical glitch uh, here. Um, but I, I would say that this is still a very, um, a very real and alarming uh, threat to us. We've had, um, only in the last two weeks, um, one of the members of the other organizations, the director of the Palestinian um, Women's Committees, was prevented from traveling um, at Allenby as well. So we're seeing these direct targeting um, of the directors of the organizations. And we would say that the, the directors of the organizations in particular are at risk. Um, and we would highlight that that, that that is a very real threat that still continues. So now we've three directors of the organizations of the three designated or of, of three out of the six designated organizations who've been denied um, travel outside of the outside of the occupied Palestinian territory. So we expect that we're going to see more of this type of persecution. Um, and it's just a matter of it being on pause for, for political reasons. Um, usually we see this when everything dies down, when, when all eyes are off us again, Israel will strike once more. So we are, it has a, it has a very serious chilling effect on our, on our work. And this is why it's particularly important as well for third states to absolutely and categorically condemn the designations and completely and utterly close the chapter on it and not give um, an invitation for Israel to produce 
um, more evidence. This is very damaging consequences um, uh, on the organizations. But we'd also say, you mentioned there, the International Criminal Court. It's also an obligation of the, the members of the Assembly of States parties at the International Criminal Court to ensure that um, organizations that are um, assisting the court and providing evidence to the court that those organizations are protected and those are obligations um, that accrue to the, the member states of the Assembly of States parties and we would expect a full intervention here to protect our organizations that are cooperating with the court. So this in particular, uh, we would like to say, and we, we urge the, the third states who are funding our organizations to ensure and can continue that support. And it really is vital. And we must see this as a first step by Israel. This is a first step to strike at the, at the core and leading international human rights organizations and uh, Palestinian human rights organizations, but it won't, it won't end there. The net will be spread wider. And the, the intent is to completely dismantle Palestinian civil society. So there's no properly functioning civil society and Israel can continue on unhindered with the complete last phase of its colonization of the Palestinian territory. What we're seeing here are the very last steps of a settler colonial and apartheid regime. Thank you for that, Dr. Power. We appreciate that. Uh, so we are just a bit over time, but that's what happens when you have a, a, a great and informational discussion like this. Uh, I want to thank all of our panelists again for joining us and presenting today, and I want to thank uh, our audience for attending. Again, the monograph that we've discussed today is available for free uh, to download at palestine-studies.org, and a recording of this event will be available on our social media platforms and on our website. Uh, so thank you everybody again. We greatly appreciate your time. <laughs>